what I want to show you this morning is that God, even though it looks to us modern people like he's talking about horticulture and agriculture and farming, he's actually giving them economics 101. He is giving them the blueprint for how they can get ahead financially. Listen in. When you enter the land and plant fruit trees, leave the fruit unharvested for the first three years and consider it forbidden. Do not eat it. In the fourth year, the entire crop, you get to harvest it, but it must be consecrated in its entirety to the Lord as a celebration of praise. And then finally, in the fifth year, you can eat of the fruit. Now, listen into this last sentence. This is an economic sentence. If you follow this pattern, your harvest, in other words, your income, your wealth, your net worth will increase. Hold on what basis can he make these claims? <laughs> I am the Lord your God. Okay, I know it sounds like agriculture, but he's really talking money. He's really talking economics. And I know some of you are thinking like, oh gosh, I've only been in church now a week or two and the pastor's already talking about money. Why is the church talking about money? I've, I, have, I have heartburn about church. Churches shouldn't talk about money. I completely disagree because you talk about money and you think about it all the time. And we actually fail you a little bit as Echo Community Church in how we talk about money because if we talked about it as often, as frequently as the Bible does, you'd hear about it about two out of every five Sundays. And we don't do that. But God recognizes that money and exchange and finances and economics can be a gateway to you living in peace and freedom, or it can drive your whole life. And from the very beginning with his people, he set up economic fences for them. And so, you know, I know we're thinking about uh, money and economics, and in fact, it's, it's hot news right now. Everybody seems to be talking about money and finance and, and the economy and economics. Lots of the people that I talk to, whether it's here in church, outside of church, with my neighbors, on airplanes, wherever it is, they're talking about things like, man, I wish I just didn't have so much financial pressure bearing down on me every day. Or, man, if I only had just a little bit more room in my budget to spend some more, or to, to move into a better place, or to, to start saving, or to, to really get ahead on my debt, I really wish that I just had a, a little bit more, a little bit more space. There, lots of people are talking about money, and some people are just so stressed and frustrated by their current financial situation that they don't even know where to start digging in. Here's the reality, friends. I mean, I'm just just being transparent. This is something we all know. When it comes to struggling or having difficulty or surprises with money, and the odds are it's happened to you, it's happening to you right now, or it's going to happen to you at some point. Whenever money and economics slap you in the face, there's only one way that we as followers of Jesus deal with it. We dig in and we dig out. We dig in and we dig out. We don't feel sorry for ourselves. We don't sit back and wait for someone else to dig us out. We dig in and we dig out. That's really the only way that you can deal and tackle with struggles and issues that you have with finances. And so I really do want to show you this morning, I really want to show you this design blueprint that God gives us. I'm not going to talk long about it, just a few minutes, because I'm also, we're going to do something fun. I'm going to bring up a friend of mine that I've been talking together about some of these things with, and his gifts are in the area of finances. God has given him strong gifts in that area. He serves and works professionally in that area, but he's going to come up. I'm going to ask him some very practical questions, and we're going to give away to you guys some really good information and practical, biblically-based uh, God solutions to whatever season of your financial journey you're in, whether you're in a situation of, of crisis and finances is driving you or whether you're on the other side of it and you've been budgeting and living God's way with your finances and you're in a different season of your life, we are going to offer you some really good teaching today that you can put to work right away to help you live in a sense of financial freedom where you drive your finances, your finances don't drive you. Your money serves you, you don't serve it. 
And that's the way that God wants you to live. Christianity holds up a relationship between you and money that no other financial advisor will send your way, that no other world religion offers with you. And we want to give that away to you this morning because it's something that God really knows is at the center of a lot of our hearts. And he wants to help us with that. So here's the big idea we're going to drive home today. Big idea, if you've got notes, you can fill in these blanks, and then after that, it's up to you to write down as little or as much as you want to. But here's the big idea. God loves us enough to design clear boundaries for us to live within so that we can get ahead with our finances. God loves you enough to tell you what the boundaries, what the laws, what the fences are. And it's not to deprive you, it's for you to get ahead. The most loving thing I can do for my children is to tell them what the boundaries are. To tell them what the rules are, rather than just saying, I know if he crosses this boundary, he's going to get punished, but I'm not going to tell him what the rule is, I'm just going to wait to punish him. That's cruel. That's abusive. God says there is a fence of his favor that we are to live inside as believers. And you can camp wherever you want inside the fence, wherever you think is wise for you to camp. But he loves you enough to tell you what the boundaries are. They are not boundaries to make us miserable and sad. They are boundaries to help us understand the way he designed things to work and for us to work things in order for us to get ahead that we can have a harvest that will provide for us, take care of us and our family, and for us to have a residual future together. God loves you enough to give you clear boundaries for us to live within so we can get ahead with our finances. So the thing I want you to understand this morning is nothing that we're sharing this morning is meant to be uh, a hammer hitting you over the head. It's meant to be the keys to the mint for you. And I hope if you listen through those ears, God will speak to your heart. And he'll, he'll challenge you and he'll shape you and he'll transform you, give you something to move forward with. Here's some of the questions we're going to tackle today. They'll put them up on the screen. We won't tackle them all at one time, but here's some things to listen in for. We're going to give you, what are the three stages of an economic cycle? In just a second, I'm going to show you that from this passage. That's one of the questions. Another one of the questions we're going to look at is this. Why, what did God instruct his people to do with their very first crop and why is that significant? Once they finally got to pick the fruit off the tree, olives or dates, what, once they finally got to pick the fruit... They'd, they'd waited and waited and grown and pruned and everything else. What were they supposed to do with the first harvest they took, and why is that important? Next question, where are the four directions our money can go? There's more than four, but what are the four primary directions our money can go? And once you know what those are, you can jot this down. This is where you start thinking about this on your own time. Which of those four things comes easiest for you? Which is the hardest? We're all different in that regard. And then really, really where I'm driving today is what's one step you can take today to further invest in your financial health? So that's kind of the, the, the layout of what we're going, going on this morning. Let me give you just, just a few minutes of, of ancient Jewish economics. I could really nerd out on this, but I won't. I will resist myself and just give you the Reader's Digest condensed version. But I want us to go back to those six sentences in Leviticus, and I feel like I need to kind of prove to you that it's really talking about economics and not just about farming. Um, here's basically what God is saying. He's saying, I'm going to give you... Because you're my kids, I'm going to give you some things. I'm going to give you land. I'm going to give you soil. I'm going to give you seeds. I'm going to give you health. I'm going to give you information and training, skills and abilities. I'm going to give you opportunity to put all these things together. And I'm going to give you a blueprint to show you how if you work these things together in the right way, if you follow the instructions, I'm going to give you step one, followed by step two, followed by step three, you will have the ability to earn for yourself enough income to eat, to clothe your family. And not only that, if you'll follow this, it will produce lifelong residual income for you if you follow it. This is what God is saying to his people. I'm going to just hand over the blueprint. Now, those of you that are real theological scholars will say, well, 
Why do we have to work for it? Well, that wasn't God's really original plan either. Was God's original plan for us to have to go out and work for everything? No. In the garden, Adam didn't have to do really any gardening. It was all taken care of. He didn't even have to water anything. The Bible says the water would just, nat- the earth would just naturally spring up and water itself. All he had to do is go around and enjoy it. But part of the consequence of us not doing things God's way is now we have to invest in the life that we live. We have to get on board and put whatever opportunities God's given to us to work. And so he says, when you go into the land and you plant fruit trees, and then he continues on. Um, Thinking about going to land and planting fruit trees is not really something that's on the tip of our tongue, but here's what he's talking about. In the Jewish world, they had olives, they had dates, they had grapes, okay? They had figs, they had grain, they had land, and they had livestock. That's what they had. That is, let me use a different word to tell you what that is. That was their portfolio. They did have currency back then, but very little of it, and it wasn't used all that frequently. And that is not where a Jewish family in in this time period would be investing. They would invest in their fields, their land, their trees, their crops, and their livestock. And all of those different things, and this is really interesting if you want to study out, every one of those different things gave a return at different frequencies and with different amounts of work. Some of those things gave you a weekly or a daily return, some of your livestock. Some of those things gave you a monthly or an annual return like fields of grain. And then other things like fruit trees were a longer-term investment. In fact, an olive tree in Jewish tradition never dies, but it takes 20 years until you can harvest it for the first time. But if you have enough of them and you're patient enough, it can fund your family for generations. There are olive trees now you can go see that are two to three to four thousand years old that are still bearing fruit. Now, what's the principle here? Within their portfolio, there are different commodities and opportunities that God gave the Jewish people to not only feed them, but if they're careful, it would not only feed their daily, monthly expenses, but it's something that would feed them residually over time that they could pass down generationally. And even when they weren't able to physically harvest anymore, they could still have income. Now is it starting to make more sense that he's talking to them about economics? And he's talking to them about one of the six ingredients in their portfolio in this passage. It's fruit trees. So if you read this passage thinking that God's being cool because he says you can't harvest it and start consuming it, spending it, using it until the fifth year, understand that they had other means to take care of that, but they had to discipline themselves to not touching that one part of their portfolio that was supposed to be residual, ongoing, lifelong income. Is that making sense to you now? Okay. So with that context, with that context, let's look at God's really showing them there's a way that this works And I'm calling it, Phil's calling it, an economic cycle. God didn't use those terms. But let me show you the three stages of an economic cycle. This is Economics 101 from God. An economic cycle is this. This is how things work and how we work things when it comes to income. Okay, so when you you hear fruit trees, it really is talking to all of us, even though we're not ancient Jewish farmers. All of us, God has given you some kind of land, some kind of soil, some kind of skill or ability, some type of seed in your life, some type of job, some type of opportunity, education, a skill, or multiple skills. He's given you some raw materials and opportunities. Not all of us the same thing. Christianity is not communism, okay? We don't all have the same amount. But God says if you manage it his way, it's enough, okay? He's given us all something. He's given us all the equivalent of a fruit tree, 
He's given us all that. You have to kind of start thinking, what are those things God's given me? And then how am I using them? Am I following God's blueprint? Here's the economic cycle. Um, economic cycle is, uh, cycle is a mathematical equation. Economic cycle equals sow, S-O-W, plus grow, G-R-O-W, plus harvest. That's a cycle. An economic cycle is sowing, which is plowing and planting, yeehaw. It is growing, which is weeding and waiting, even more fun. And then harvest, which is reap and reward. That's the one we really like, right? We live in a country where everybody wants harvest, 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 and they're finding all kinds of ways to try and shortcut God's process to just live and reap and reward. That's why people are in debt. That's why people overuse credit. That's why people have nothing saved because harvest is all about spend, 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 consume, 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 whether or not it matches up with the harvest that you have, whether it matches up. We just want to skip to that stage. But God says there's sowing, there's growing, there's harvesting. Let me give you just one or two minutes on each one of those so that you have an idea of how that relates to us personally. We're talking about sowing. We're really talking about plowing and planting. There's another thing for this. It's called hard work. I hope this, you know, one of the things I am really trying to instill in my sons is a work ethic. Because I am very concerned that work ethic is going out the window. Very concerned. And there's a few things in life I can't give you. I can't give you a passion for God. I can't give you teachability. And I can't give you a strong work ethic. But that is the DNA that I look for leaders. That is the DNA I look for staff. That is the DNA. Anything else, I can send you to a class to learn it. But if you don't have passion for God, if you're not teachable, if you don't have a strong work ethic, if you don't have all three, you're going to have a hard time making it. You're going to have a hard time getting ahead in God's kingdom. And work ethic is one of those things. We don't like it, so we try and find ways to skip over it. But let me tell you, you know, what were the, what were the Jews supposed to be? He says, when you plant fruit trees. In other words, in one word, he's saying there's a lot of work. You've got to find the right land. Any, any of you have ever planted a garden? It's work on the first year, isn't it? You got to get, I mean, we have machines now, but imagine what they had to do. You got to break up the ground. You got to break up the soil. You got to remove rocks. You got to make sure the soil has enough of the right nutrients for what type of crop you're going to plant there. You got to, I mean, my dad used to take the rototiller through the garden and my job was to go behind with a bucket and pick up the rocks. That was not enjoyable. That was not fun. It's work. You're getting that soil conditioned to be able to live a life of economic responsibility and maturity. Now, when does this happen for us? Well, in our childhood, our adolescence, and in our early adulthood. In those years, you are not an asset. You are a liability. My six-year-old and my one-year-old, as much as I love them, are not adding to the income of the Nower house. They are depleting it. And outside of my little tax credit I get for each of them, there's really not much economic advantage to Phil and Kendra right now of having our children, but what are we supposed to be? We are supposed to be planting into them, raising them, giving them a foundation, teaching them how to work, teaching them how to budget, teaching them how to be kind, teaching them how to be ready for a life of economic independence of mom and dad. We're trying to get them ready. And everyone in this room, we were raised somehow by somebody. We got some level of education. We got some level of people planting and sowing into us but there comes a season of our life where us being the recipients of all of that the soil is as ready it's going to be and we have to move on to another season 
and in the season of life, I hope none of us in this room are still in our, uh, you know, our planting season of life in terms of being the recipient. Most of us are probably involved in some way of being the planter. There's somebody or some part of the field in our life now that we know how to work a field, now that we know how to operate in life a little bit better, we are looking over to our left or our right and we are planting and sowing into someone else's life. So you have that, that, that first season. Uh, you know, this happens with us in our childhood, our adolescence, our early adulthood. We learn discipline, we learn skills, we learn work ethic, we get an education. We're not quite, you know, we're not quite there yet. We're liabilities at that point. But then you go to the next season of your economic cycle, and that's the growth season. This is where we now move into a season of life where we're producing. There's growth, we hope. There's some level of taking all of the preparation and moving. The seed is starting to produce things now. Now, if you're 47, still living in you know, mom and dad's basement because you can't figure out what you want to major in yet, um, you know, maybe for you, mom and dad need to say it's not your grow season, it's your go season. But this is what we're supposed to be doing after that foundation has been created in our life. Then we move into a season where we start to produce. This is weeding and waiting. This is in the life of the Jewish farmers. This happens after the planting is done, but before the first harvest. This is years like two and three and even four. A lot of these fruit trees, if you study the little that we know about Jewish horticulture, those first couple years were critical. The way you pruned the tree, the way you weeded, the way that you pulled rocks around, all that was critical in order to make sure that that tree could really mature enough to produce lifelong. If you shortcut the process in the first four years, those trees would not produce for a lifetime. You would diminish their overall yield over its lifespan. The word that they say here, he says, he says even when you get to harvest, don't eat on the fourth year. Do not eat the fruit that comes out the fourth year, consider it forbidden. The better word, the original word, was consider it uncircumcised. It is, not, it is not yours to eat yet. If you shortcut the process, that tree will not give you fruit for the next thousand years like it should. But if you trust the process and if you have discipline and you don't get impatient, you don't say, well, those apples look really good and I could have them now and I want them now and I should have them now. It would be great to have apples. Why wait? You're going to shortcut the process and you're going to pay a price for it. Okay? Bleeds right into our economics because we're still trying to shortcut the process when it comes to our weed and wait season. I can't tell you how many people are in that season of life. They finally start making money. They finally start getting a paycheck. And rather than living inside of a budget and being disciplined, they decide, I want to have my harvest life now. And they can't afford it. And even if they can, they're either spending what they make or more than they make, or they're spending before that they earn it, and they have no money saved, and so they start leaning on borrowing and credit to fund their wants now. And if they do get a raise, it doesn't create margin, they just increase their spending. And they get stuck in this cycle, and they want harvest, 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 and they're not willing to listen to God when he says, it's not time for you to start touching the things that are supposed to mature and develop over time. You just wait. You have grain. You have livestock. You have enough to live on. Now what I've given you is enough. Just wait. And they wait how long with this farmer? He waits four years, and then God says, and now the figs and the olives are going to be looking good, and you get to go out and collect a harvest. And what are they supposed to do with that first harvest? Do they get to eat it? No. What are they supposed to do? Consecrate it and give it back to God. What? You mean to tell me that when it comes to income, once I put all this hard work in and all my skills and talents and that check comes, that the first thing I'm supposed to do is give back to God? 
what in the world is that principle all about? Well, let me break it down for you. Farmers get paid like some of you get paid. Some of you don't have a salary. Some of you don't know how much you're going to make this week, this month, this year. You have investments. You don't know how they're going to do. You've got bonuses. You don't know how much they're going to be. You've got overtime. You don't know how much it's going to, going to be. You've got gigs or other things, business your way. You don't know today how much money you're going to make this month or this year. And the farmers were the same way. A farmer would take several weeks during the harvest, and they would go out, and they would harvest all the crops. It took weeks. And only after they got all the crops and they could itemize it and count it, only at that point, only after the harvest was over did they know how much they really brought in. Only at the end did they know how much they had earned. And so you'd think logically, well, then how do they decide how much to give? Well, they can't decide how much to give until after the harvest was over. And then they'd say, well, we made this much, and so we can afford to give this much to to the Lord and this much to the poor and this much to my friend that's hurting. You can decide after everything has come in how much you want to give away. And if we made this much, we can afford to give this much. And if we made this much, we can afford to give this much. And most of us logically would be thinking, yeah, that makes sense. And God says, absolutely not. That's not my fence for you. What he actually said to the farmers is, on those first day or two of your harvest, Whatever comes in first, that's what you consecrate and you give. And that sounds ridiculous because the farmer has no idea how much is going to come in. The farmer has no idea even what percentage of everything that that is. He's giving away or she's giving away the very first that comes in, not even knowing what the harvest is. What is the principle God's trying to show us? Here's the principle because I've got to move on. Here's the principle. What God is saying is if you wait until all your money comes in, And then you wait and see, after you've done all the math, how much you can afford to give. What you're doing is you're giving out of your surplus. You're giving what you want to give without having it affect anything about the way that you live. You're giving after you've paid all the bills that you want to pay. You've spent all the money you want to spend. You've eaten out all the places. You've bought the houses and the cars and you've taken the vacations and you've spent on your hobbies. After you've done everything else. You're giving out of what's left over. And it doesn't impact the way you, it doesn't cut into the way that you live at all. And what God is saying, I hear you, Dave, what God is saying is that I want you to give to me first, not out of the surplus. And I know you're thinking, well, if I give him first before I know what's coming in, that's going to affect the way that I live. Exactly. God wants us to give sacrificially, joyfully graciously and the way that we give should absolutely cut into and define the way that we live well i agree pastor but how on earth do i do that only when you recognize that everything you have isn't really yours anyway can you do this only when you recognize that every single thing that you and i have every opportunity all our education every advantage all of our skills and our health those are gracious gifts given to us by jesus and only when you recognize it that way will you be able to worship god and respond to him this way and people have a problem with this they say oh goodness well pastor i i i can't do that i just have a problem with that the, you know, i work really hard for my money okay well well how how are you able to work as hard as you do who gave you the strength to do that well, I just, I've always just had a great work ethic and I have a lot of skills and I have a great education and I did that all for myself. Okay, well, who gave you your health? Who gave you the opportunity to even be in a place where you can get that education? Well, I'm, just, I'm self-made and I deserve it. Who does God think that he is? 
Well, A, he's the Lord your God. B, let me ask you this question. What if the same exact you was born in the 13th century on a cold mountainside in outer Mongolia? No matter how hard you work or how smart you are, you'll always be poor. You would never have the education you have now. You'd never have what you have now. So how much of this are you really responsible for? Don't you, thank you, Dave, I hear you, buddy. Uh, I'll, I'll preach from this point on, okay? What you've got going on at this point is, is a God who says this. I want you to see, and the Jews had this meshed into their faith. In fact, if you go back and read Deuteronomy 26, when they gave him the offering, they weren't even allowed to put it into the plate and just walk away. They had to pause when they brought their offering to the priest, and they had to say this. They had to connect their offering to grace. We recognize that our father was just a, a man, a stranger wandering in the wilderness, but because of God, he's brought us out. Every time they gave in their offering, God wanted them to connect that offering to his grace. And only when you begin to see that everything you have, down to your opportunities, your health, your skills, only when you begin to see those are a gift from God will you be able to give the first and let it cut into the way that you live because it's an expression of the love of your heart, not just you following along with religion blindly. So enough on, on grow. Let's skip to harvest because that's what everybody loves. Harvest is reaping reward. This is our favorite season. Other people have sown into us and they've invested in our lives. As we grow into adults, we've worked hard to develop skills, to learn, to generate income, but we've been disciplined. We don't shortcut the process. Now we're in the fifth year. We've eliminated debt. We followed a God-first budget where we, the way that we give, we save, we spend. And now that this extra harvest of apples or figs or olives is coming, now that we're in our harvest season, we don't automatically have, it doesn't automatically give us happiness. It doesn't automatically, you know, make us better than other people. What it does give us is options. What it does supply is some peace. What it does supply is some freedom. And if you don't shortchange the process, and if you don't shortcut the process, spending more than you earn, living without a budget, spending first and giving, if you don't shortcut God's process, you're not promised wealth, you're not promised poverty, you're not promised to be in the middle. It's neither promised nor forbidden. What God will supply you is something I'll give you later. He will supply you with contentment and resolve your finances. Let's make this super practical. I'm going to invite my friend Tyler to come on up. Tyler's going to grab uh, these two stools for us, and I think, I hope you have, do you have the handheld or wherever the handheld is? If it could, Fred's got it, he'll hand you the baton. Tyler, uh, in our series on spiritual gifts, said, uh, he, he reached out to me one day, he emailed me, and he said, you know, um, Phil, I, God's really reminded me of what my spiritual gifts are, and I'm just gifted in the area of teaching and money and finance, and he says, I want to find ways that I can bless my church family through my gifts, and I said, well, ironically enough, I'm preparing a sermon in November. I'm going to grab a seat, buddy. You can actually sit down and relax because I'm going to do the same thing too. Um, he said, I want to find a way to, to get some of what God's doing out that it can bless people. And so I said, you know, we're going to be talking about some practical things like, like money and like budgeting and all that kind of good stuff uh, on this particular Sunday. What would you think about working with me together on the content of the message? And he said, I would love to be able to do that. So this is my buddy Tyler. He did, he's an expert. He's, well, that, that's, I'm, okay, he, he, I'm, because I'm qualified to decide who's experts or not, but, but uh, Tyler and I talk about these topics a lot. It's something that's near and dear to both of our hearts and something that we both spend times in different arenas helping people through. So I just want to ask him some practical questions that I think will really be helpful to you along the way. So listen in on what he shares, and, and, and at the end of this, I've got an opportunity for us to even go a little deeper with you guys as individuals or families if it, if it would be helpful. But Tyler, one of the things that um, 
I hear a lot and what I do when people come and ask me questions about money. They're usually coming from a church. And their story after I ask a few questions basically boils down to the following. It's usually, um, I've got unpaid bills that I can't pay. I've got a crisis in my life. I'm in debt over my head. I don't have a budget. I don't have a spending plan. I don't have a savings plan. I don't have a giving plan. And I am so overwhelmed, I don't even know where to start. So Tyler, if that was me coming to you this morning and saying, Tyler, that's my scenario, what's one thing you would say to me in my season of finances that I could do today that would help me dig in and dig out? So, uh, great question. And it's going to be better in a second as soon as they got it. You got him? Okay. Okay, there you go. All right, so uh, really you have to start with the budget. I mean, that's the first thing. And if you, if you don't have a plan of where your money is going, you don't know where it's going, True. what are you going to do? You, you can't decide anything else from that point. And when you think about a budget, a lot of people think of very archaic things. You know, I have to run around with this little journal. I have to write every expenditure that I have in it and just make sure I track meticulously what it is. Uh, it's not necessarily that, but it is sitting down, coming up with a plan of what you're going to do, where your money is going to go. You want to tell it where to go before you get it. And then at that point, once it comes in, you know exactly what's going to happen to it. So making sure you have that plan, starting with the budget, and then everything else from there is going to be contingent on that plan that you already have set up. Okay, so I get my budget together. Now let's say I'm in a different season of life a little bit. I've, I've got some traction now. I've got a budget. I'm following it. And as a follower of Jesus, you just said about, you know, we want to tell our money where to go. So I know you and I both have some Dave Ramsey in us, right? So we, want to we don't want our money to tell us where it goes. We don't want it to magically disappear. We want to tell it where to go. And I know as a follower of Jesus, there's four basic directions my money can go. I can give it, I can save it, I can spend it, I can use it to eliminate debt. Could you put those things in priority order for, for us from highest priority to lower pri lowest priority? Once we have a bu budget and we're tracking our income, we're looking at our expenses, you know, when it comes to saving, spending, giving, eliminating debt, what's our priority order? What should we be doing with our money? Yeah, definitely. And if you guys were paying attention at all, I'm going to get in trouble if I don't say give first. Uh, because <laughs> Phil is hitting on that. I will throw you off the stage yeah. right now. Your commission is gone. No. And uh, obviously giving is extremely important. That's going to be first off the top for, you know, the reasons that Phil mentioned for us. I know for me personally, giving money is something that I tended to have a tight grip on. And giving for me has allowed me to loosen that tight grip a little bit. Uh, to be a little more generous with my money, and to learn that obviously money is not everything. So uh, starting with that and, and giving first will give you that uh, sacrificial attitude. Um, from there, you want to make sure your necessities are met. Um, so, and this is necessities. This is why a caveat here. We have story. arguments over what is a need versus what is yes, a greed, right? Absolutely. How many pairs of shoes does one need? Right. Right. So, so you know, every, you have your general housing. Uh, transportation to and from work, food on the table, those are your necessities. But after that, then you have to make sure you get that giving, or sorry, the savings part down. Because if you're not saving and putting that away, money tends to disappear magically. So, so you're saying Netflix is not a necessity? Yes, Netflix is not a necessity. <sighs> sorry. Did you feel the Holy Spirit leave the building when that happened? <laughs> so Binge watching is out the window. Yeah, <laughs> so really making sure you get that savings down. Yeah. From there, after you have the, the giving, spending on necessities and saving, then you can go on the spending on luxuries, giving more. You can kind of decide where you want to go from there, and you have that flexibility. But kind of hitting those points first is, is very important. Yeah, um, we've talked a lot about giving, so you know, I won't give you any more giving questions. Let me ask you a saving, just a basic savings question. Uh, you know, there are people in the room who are like, you know what, I, 
debt's not running my life. I got a handle on it, got a budget, but saving's a little bit of a knuckleball for some people. Just, just some basic stuff on saving. When should I start saving money, like putting it in, a, in an interest-bearing savings account or whatever I do? When should I start in terms of what age or season in my life is appropriate? How much should I have on uh, hand for emergencies? Any just kind of the basics about saving. Yeah, so, so with saving, it's, it's super important to start and start early, and everybody's heard that. Um, I know my wife, Rebecca, and I, we were with the youth probably um, two years ago now on a Sunday, all the guys and girls up here, and I told them, and I firmly believe every single one of you guys can be millionaires at some point in your life if you start. In the name of age. Jesus, yes. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. And they kind of looked at me with dumbfounded faces, and, uh, you know, we went, went into more, some more details, but it's, it's having that, um, that diligence to, to be able to start and do it. And I know everybody in here, we're not in high school anymore, right. so we're, we're not starting at that point. But um, super important to just start uh, with some type of baby step, even if it's just kind of the 1% thing, and just mm-hmm. start with 1% um, and go from there. So taking care of, uh, of doing that, absolutely important to start with the savings. And, and just to kind of dovetail on that a little bit, I mean, you know some of the services that I use to get financial counsel, and one of them had sent an article out this week that talked about, um, this, this was just this week, this is a secular organization about how my age of people is not saving, you know, 40 and under are not saving like they should. And what it's done is even though we're earning, we are leaning on credit and debt to be able to finance our financial emergencies. We, in other words, we don't have cash on hand if an appliance breaks or if a, an emergency. So we have to turn to credit to fund our emergencies. And one of the things that it recommends is if you have trouble getting on a savings plan, um, just have it directly withdrawn from some, you know, like in your bank account or whatever, just have, if it's $50 a month or there's all kinds of apps like Stash and other things that makes it ridiculously, inexcusably easy for you to start disciplining yourself to save. And sometimes if you treat it like it's a bill rather than an option, it gets you into that habit and it, and it adjusts your, your cycle that way. So yeah, spending is, or saving is something that God's big on too. You know, you eat all the olive harvest, you got nothing left for the future. So um, I know we hammer giving a lot in church, but but saving is also really critical. Yeah, and just, just a caveat on that, too. Um, and another thing, you know, this is a, a Dave Ramsey Financial Peace University thing um, that actually, if you're interested in any of that and taking some next steps, um, John Burke, uh, you can speak with him. He does facilitate it for our church personally. Uh, but having three to six months of emergency yeah. expenses and savings is super important. It's a good goal. It takes a while to build up to that. Yep. But that means you have to know what your expenses are. You need to know if, you, if your necessities are 1000 a month, 2000 a month, 4000 a month. You need to know what that is, which is where you get started on this. But it's great to have three to six months of that available. It doesn't mean that you're crisis-proof, but it means that you're going to be a little bit steadier when crises happen. And that life is attractive to your friends who aren't prepared the same way. But it takes discipline, and it takes something over time to be able to do that. So I'm a big fan of, well, you and I are both big fans of a word I call margin. And margin is something that the people that I coach financially, once we get to this stage, margin is something that I preach really heavily to them. Um, Margin is basically what's left over in your budget after you have satisfied your monthly obligations to your necessities, your luxuries, any debt that you're trying to retire, you've saved, you've spent, and now you have money left over. That's called margin. Okay, that's the fancy word for it. Leftovers is another one. Or some of you say free money. Okay, uh, but it's that space that you have. And, and, I, and I tell the people that I coach, um, margin does not guarantee you happiness, but it does give you options. So let's talk 
just for a second for those in the room who are like, you know what, I'm in a, I've got some of these basic things down. I'm budgeting God's way. I'm giving. I'm saving. I'm tackling my debt. I'm spending. I, I, I've got a good handle on this. What are some questions we should be asking ourselves once we get to that season of life where we have margin? And then secondly, if we don't have margin but we want some, there's really only two ways you can get it, right? You have to make more money or spend less. And outside of getting a new job, right? Because everybody's like, are you telling me I need to leave my job? What are some ways that we can create margin if we don't have any? So, so that's a great question. And anyone that knows me knows I can talk kind of endlessly about this. So I'll try to, uh, to encapsulate it in a, in a few different things that are applicable for, for a lot of uh, everyone here today. So real quick, I'll start with a, a story that I had. Um, and it, it's just a really brief and kind of generic story. But I used to ride the bus um, for a job that I worked at downtown. And some of the friends that I made while I was riding the bus were young Indian guys. And they, just listening to their stories, they came over from India. You know, they were, they were educated. They had college degrees there. They were, a lot of them had their master's already. They were pretty much all in the IT field. And um, they did an excellent job of creating margin. It's something that kind of ingrained in their culture, I think, a little bit. They would live in apartments with each other. They would just find random roommates online that they were familiar with. And they would have a folding table and folding chairs, some pots and pans, wow. and laptops. And that's literally all they had. Uh, they would sleep on the floor in the apartment. They'd have a bunch of roommates. They'd all cook food together. Um, they'd all ride the bus downtown together. And they were making, you know, pretty good money. They were making anywhere from, you know, sixty to $80,000, $100,000 a year. Wow. And just saving an immense amount of that. Um, so that's kind of encapsulates a few different ways you can have margin. So I want to I hit on some of those. So maybe you are a college student and you're like, all right, where can, where can I figure out how to make some money? So uh, cell phone bills, that's, that's a great one that I can think of for that. A lot of people have unlimited data plans. They want to sit there and stream their music. You know, they might not, uh, they might not want to talk to anybody, especially in college. They're just going to sit there on their cell phone and right, right. And uh, when we're sitting right next to each other. So maybe consider um, shopping around for that, uh, finding a plan that's not unlimited data. You can still get your emails. You can still get your GPS on there, uh, that type of thing. But I know, for instance, I have a cell phone plan that's less than 25 bucks a month, and I have all that stuff. It takes care of it, and I use Wi-Fi for the rest. So that's uh, one good option. Um, and let's say you're kind of the next stage in life. You're young and single. Um, so for those, I kind of fit with the guys that I talked about in the story. Um, eating in with friends, having them over rather than eating out, that's a, a great opportunity. Living with more roommates, that's going to cut your budget down tremendously and create that margin for your budget. So that can be really good. Um, kind of moving on to the next stage, let's say you're a, a parent with young kids in the house and you want to help them save for college. So there are tax advantage plans called 529 Maryland plans. 529 plans. And yep. you can get a tax break on that. Up to $2,500 a, yep, $2, a year per student. I need to be careful about tax advice. I get myself in big trouble. Right. So just forget that I said that. <laughs> yep. I'm not yep. licensed for that. But Phil's definitely right with that. So if you're already doing that, that's just making it more efficient for what you're already doing and creating margin. Um, I guess at any point in the spectrum, we can talk about carpooling or mm -hmm. taking public transportation to work. Some people that might work for us, some it might not but that really can free up some, some room in your budget. Uh, might make it a little more inconvenient, but you know, you're, you're having some trade-offs here. Yeah. And then as you get farther down the line, let's say you're closer to retirement age, have you thought about Social Security? There's a lot of different strategies that you can use before you claim Social Security, whether you're married or not. So it's really important to understand each uh, option that you have and the decision that you're making there because you can... Um, you know, you can't predict when you're going to die, which is the yeah. biggest factor, but it can, uh, it can build up or, or cost you a lot of money depending on what you pick. 
So we're running up against time, and I, and I know on that topic, and I think that's probably where a lot of people are, I talk with regularly, they're in that season, they're in the, um, they're going through their budget and they're saying, all right, we're going to take a vacation every year, but what value do we place on, ha- on spending X on that versus being able to do some other things like retirement, putting money away for my kids. They're looking at vacations, hobbies, eating out, luxuries, and I think that's for a lot of us when it re- you have to really have an honest conversation in your heart about what your ultimate financial goals are and are you getting there by having Hulu and Netflix and, you know, and everything else, all these subscriptions, shopping your insurance regularly is a great way to say we just saved a significant amount of money this last week on shopping for our insurance and going with a different company. So lots of different ways. Here's the reality. As we land the plane, we got like four minutes left. Um, I find people in general very hesitant to talk to anybody, including sometimes their spouse or their family, about their money problems or their money dreams or their money questions. Very, very, very hesitant, almost like it's invasive. How do we overcome that? So that, uh, that's really something that kind of is ingrained in our, our culture for whatever reason. Um, so, so just being honest with yourself, you know, sitting down and thinking about it, talking with someone, whether it's confidential, yeah. uh, you, know, you know you're not going to uh, have someone spreading all the information all around. Um, and just knowing that a lot of people may be in the same situation as you, just like anything else. You know, you're not, we know we're all not experts, so, uh, so just taking the time to realize that and, and seeking some help. Do you feel like talking to somebody else about our financial health is part of our discipleship journey? Do you make a spiritual connection between our willingness to be financially healthy with our uh, desire to be spiritually healthy? Yeah, I think, uh, I think that's definitely important. And it's not necessarily um, for every single person. You know, if, you're, if you do that as a profession, you're a mechanic, you're not going to go to someone else for, for your car. Sure. But if you realize that, hey, I'm not an expert in this field, I need a little bit of help, um, you can, you can get that advice and get that help. And it doesn't mean spending a lot of money to talk to someone necessarily, right. but doing some research or asking questions, things like that. I, I think that's a great point. We wouldn't look sideways at somebody who went to the doctor for medical help to stay healthy. We wouldn't look sideways at someone that went to a mechanic to get automobile help. Why do we feel like there's some stigma as Christians about talking to someone that knows a little bit more <laughs> about money than us to get some advice? You know, there's, there's no shame in that. In fact, there's wisdom. It's foolish to know you need help or health, or we, let's take those words out, that you would uh, get some good coaching. You don't only go to the doctor when you're sick, you have wellness visits too, right? So, you know, I, I think we, especially as a church, because the world looks at us and we should be able to show them a different relationship with money than the world has. I think a big part of that is us humbling ourselves enough to find people that can speak into our life that we feel comfortable talking to about money and finance. So final question, agree or disagree, financial coaching is only for people who are in financial crisis. Completely disagree, and that, that's something that, just like anything else, you're going to learn um, a, as time goes on. I personally like, I love to listen to different podcasts Me and too. read articles yep. about finances because I can always find ways to optimize my tax situation, my investments, more frugal habits that I have, and, and I'm constantly learning with that, and there's so many different resources out there that are accessible, so, so definitely want to keep learning. Yeah, so we want to smash that stigma that says the only time you should be getting good financial teaching or coaching is when you're in crisis. Now, all different seasons of your life, all different seasons of your journey, it is wise for you to get good, solid financial coaching. And to that end, um, on Sunday, January 20th, Tyler and I and Connie Moore and I have talked about this. And next year, we're going to be doing some more specific things to resource healthy marriages, healthy parents, and healthy finances. And so the first thing we're going to do is on Sunday afternoon, uh, January the 20th, Tyler 
um, and Connie are going to make themselves available to provide individual appointments at Echo HQ for anybody in this congregation who would love to have some financial coaching. It can be about any number of different topics, whether it's eliminating debt or starting a budget or uh, whether you just would like to maybe optimize, maybe you think you might be paying more than you should be paying on taxes and you want to just talk with someone who has expertise in that field who can help you perhaps create some cash flow and make wiser decisions and take advantages of different ways that you can perhaps reduce your tax bill or accelerate your retirement. Whatever it is, we want to offer that to you and we are not, there is no charge for it, there is no solicitation, we are going to give you good professional coaching for whatever it is that you need. When I say we, I will be there to check you in and check you out, but I'm not going to, you know, thank God, I will not be the one giving you uh, the financial coaching. But I know Tyler is going to be making himself available for one-hour appointments that afternoon, as is Connie. And depending upon the response, there are some others that I might approach. As much help as we can provide for you, we're going to. But here's the condition. You start this process to secure one of those appointments by signing up out there today. We just need a name and an address, that, or a name and an email address or a phone number. I personally will contact you because, listen, this is a big gift you're being given, okay? These are going to be hard-set appointments, and I want to chat with each of you a little bit beforehand to kind of find out what are the one or two basic questions or coaching you really want to get so I can pair you up with someone who's an expert in that. There's no cost to you. There's no long-term obligation other than that you set an appointment, you keep an appointment, you come prepared. Because I can't help someone that doesn't want to be helped. Are you with me? Okay. We're here to coach. And so if you are serious about getting help, then you'll say, I'll do that. If you're serious about wanting to grow and be healthier financially, you'll be like, absolutely, I'm going to sign up and I'm going to take advantage of that resource. So we just want to make sure that we honor them because I anticipate there to be a huge response. But uh, so after church today, if that's one, th- one investment you want to make in 2019 to become a healthier financially, you just want to sit down with a professional and say, hey, will you just look over my situation? I think things look healthy, but I'd love for you to look into it and see how I might be able to optimize saving or optimize giving. There's some things I just want to do financially, and I need a little bit better of a blueprint. might not be for everybody. You might be a good financial mechanic, and you can DIY the thing. Um, but even in the season of life that I'm in, there's different arenas of my life that I, you know, I don't know how to pick stocks. So I pay to have someone help me optimize our retirement, you know, because at some point, you know, I may stop working 30, 40, 50 years from now when my youngest graduates from high school because I had kids late. You know, I'm going to be 75 till he graduates from high school. But, uh, you know, it, it's, it's a wise thing to do. So we're making that available to you. So can you show your appreciation to Tyler? I appreciate you, buddy. Thank you for sharing some of your wisdom with us. So which of those four things come easiest for you? You don't have to say it out loud, but are you somebody who, you know, spending is easy for you? Maybe you're somebody who, like, saving is easy for me, and you can become, like, if you're not careful, you become a money hoarder, and you won't spend money on anything, even if you should, right? You know, you can do a little bit better than the folding chairs and the card table, and, you, you know, you just won't. <laughs> you know, you have to know yourself to know that it's not a sin to be able to identify that that's part of your health. Which of those four areas, saving, spending, eliminating debt, uh, was the other one? Giving. Which of those is easiest for you? Which is hardest? What's one thing you can do today to invest in your financial health? As you think about that, I'm going to invite our worship team to come forward because some of you are thinking, what in the world does this have to do with the gospel? What in the world does this have to do with Jesus? Let me tell you, friend, it has absolutely everything to do with Jesus. And there's a long and a short answer to it. How about the short one? The short answer is this. Following Jesus coming inside his kingdom, having your life rearranged by the gospel will affect dramatically your relationship with money. 
However, maybe not in the way that you think that or it's been preached to you. Following Jesus does not guarantee you a life of financial wealth. Doesn't guarantee it to you. Doesn't promise it to you. You'd have to take out all the poor people in the world that God used and say that they missed it somehow. Or Jesus, who only had one possession left at his death, his robe, and he lost even that. And the most incredible thing he ever did to God, he did when he was completely penniless. Christianity doesn't guarantee you wealth. It doesn't prohibit it or either. Christianity does not promise you poverty. Because there's a school of thought that says the, whole, the less you have, the holier you are. That wouldn't life be great if we just got rid of everything and we lived on nothing but grass and water and we just gave everything away. Well, Christianity doesn't demand poverty of you, nor does it prohibit it. Christianity doesn't even promise you that when it comes to financial things, you'll remain right in the middle at all times. And I'll tell you why it doesn't promise that. Because the world is telling you that one of those three things is what you should think about money. The world's going to tell you either you should go have more than the next guy and you should pursue wealth. And once you do, you'll be satisfied. Once you finally achieve wealth, there's a place you'll be satisfied. Or the world tells you, you know what, sell it all, live in a tiny house and just go give and be free and blah, blah, blah. You'll never be able to give enough away to really find satisfaction. You'll never be able to earn enough if you, are, if you chase wealth. You'll, it's, the world's going to tell you that there's a place you can get with having money and things where you'll be satisfied. And once you get it, you'll find you're still not satisfied. Look at the wealthiest people in the world. Some of them are the most miserable. Because they got everything they thought would supply for them what they really needed. And once they had it, they still didn't have it. Look at the people who chase poverty. And some of them are the most miserable people ever because they can't seem to give enough away to get to that place of being really fulfilled. And even if you say, I'm going to just stay in the middle of the road, that's what Christianity offers me, you'll always feel torn to move in one direction or the other. Here's what following Jesus does supply you. It doesn't guarantee you wealth. It doesn't guarantee you poverty. It does not guarantee you middle of the road. It says, though, if you follow Jesus, I will supply you, says Jesus. I will supply you with contentment. I will give you the thing that chasing any of those other avenues with money will never give you. If you follow Jesus and you trust him and you've been changed by the gospel, immediately your relationship with money changes because you no longer need a lot, a little, or in the middle to make you feel content. You get all the contentment just from being Jesus's and then you are divorced from the role that money places on your identity, on your purpose, on your meaning, and you're freed up to be content whether you have a lot or a little or you're in the middle. Aren't all of us really chasing contentment? Jesus offers you contentment that money can't offer you. And he went and made himself completely poor so that you could be completely wealthy. That's what this attitude has to do with the gospel. Because until you really experience the contentment of having everything about purpose, meaning identity and security and confidence through a relationship with Christ, you'll always look to money to provide for you something only Jesus can. Because Jesus could snap his finger and make you wealthy. But that's not your deepest need. And he knows it. He could snap his finger and let you be the most generous person ever. But that's not your deepest need. And he knows it. Your deepest need is to be saved. Your deepest need is to know how loved and valued you are and to be given to you in such a way that no stock market crash or change in economy or no matter where you grow up, nothing can rip that from you. And you see the pathway to finding contentment with the finances begins and ends with Jesus. 
And so if you find yourself anxious about a lot of these things, if you find yourself consumed with thoughts about money and finances and you feel like it's diminishing the joy with, with, you li- with which you live, there's probably some hard work to be done there. But it begins by you coming back to the foot of Jesus and saying, I thank you that in you I have everything I'll ever need and I will never lack for anything. Let's come to that place this morning. Will you bow your heads with me as we end our service together this morning? Is it time for you to say yes to Jesus today? Is it time for you to surrender your life to him and really live his way? You can follow all of the budgeting advice we gave you today. In fact, many financial advisors are telling you to do the same stuff we told you today. Truth is truth is truth. Just know that God invented those principles. We just discovered them. But you can follow all those things and still not spend eternity with Jesus. You can run an awesome budget. You can give charitably. You can serve your church. You can do a whole bunch of other good things. But those things won't earn you heaven. Those things won't earn you a relationship with God. In fact, you cannot earn it. He just offers it to you through Jesus. And if you need to surrender your life to Jesus today and you desperately want, you are drawn to a life that says, I want to walk so close to Jesus. I want my identity to be rooted in him that it will be durable. It will be unshakable. I will no longer have to look to my paycheck or what I have or what I don't or compare myself to somebody better or worse than me to make my feel like, myself feel like I'm successful. If you want to live with pure contentment through Christ, Here's the beginning step. You have to admit, believe, choose. Admit that you've sinned and fallen short of Jesus' standards. Believe that he is the son of God, that he lived the life he should have lived, died on the cross in your place, and that he rose from the dead. And now you're accepted by God based on Jesus' resume, not yours. And see, you have to choose him to be your Lord. Basically, what you're saying is, God, I recognize you are the designer and you make the fences, not me. And I will abide by your fences and I will live inside of them. I won't pick and choose. You're the Lord and you want what's best for me. And I am going to cede that authority to you. I want to lead you in a prayer if that's where you're at today. A simple prayer and you can pray this right where you are. Dear Jesus, I admit that I've sinned. I am in need of forgiveness. I confess my belief in you. That you are the son of God. You died on the cross. You did that for me. You rose from the dead. You took my consequence on you. And you put your righteousness on me. I accept your forgiveness. I accept contentment. Come live inside of me. I choose you as my Lord. I get off the throne of my life. And I invite you to sit in its place. Thank you for saving me. Amen.